Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. I saw a lot of a lot of, of deceitfulness going on, you know, and 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 it was born out of the need to conform to the IFB standards. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host... Eric Skwarzynski. All right, guys. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I'm so excited to have Drew Garcia. You guys probably know him as Andrew. Uh, he was kind of the Steven Spielberg of the independent Baptist movement for a while. Uh, shot videos all over the IP. And that's a weird shared connection we have. We'll get into. But uh, Drew, thanks for joining me on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here. And I've been admiring what you've been doing from a distance for a while now. So I'm glad that this worked out. That's awesome. There's a lot of people consuming the show from a distance. They either hate for a di- from a distance or they reach out like a few months later, like, I actually like what you're doing. Like, keep it up. Yeah. So, but um, yeah, man, it's it's really good to talk to you. And, uh, you know, my my first introduction to you was, I mean, high school. Like, I just remember, you know, we'd sit through really bad missionary presentations and promos and um, I remember Jeff Call came into our church and showed mm. like a, a trailer for Camp Kobiak, and I was like, "Who shot this? Like, what? What in the world?" Because yeah. I was tinkering with cameras and I was interested in that stuff, and I was like, "Oh, this doesn't look boring." So that's that's pretty cool. And I got kind of turned on to like, "Oh, that's Andrew Garcia," and I started just like binging your stuff. And yeah, just uh, it was interesting following you and seeing you kind of like work with all the biggest names in fundamentalism and then kind of like just disappear into the smoke. And I was like, where did he go? Um, yeah. But yeah, but you didn't start with a camera in hand. So what was kind of your, your background in the IP? Like how'd you first get introduced to that movement as a whole? Well, I was raised, uh, I was raised, I wouldn't say fundamentalist because, you know, there really is a distinction between the movement I was raised in and what is considered the IFB. So the movement I was raised in is they consider themselves Bible believers because they kind of put the King James Bible as like, you know, front and center. That's the that's the foremost issue 
And so, you know, and it, and that's all part of the, you know, the Ruckmanite crowd. So I went to Treasure Valley Baptist Church in Meridian, Idaho from the time I was five years old. And so, yeah, I just got a steady diet of, you know, for them, the emphasis is doctrine. Whereas I'd say with the IFB, the emphasis is like soul winning for a lot of them. You know, Paul Chappell always used to say, keep the main thing, the main thing. And the main thing is soul winning. Well, that's not something that I really heard at my home church. You know, everything was about the doctrine, what was taught. And it wasn't a, it wasn't a really outreach focused church. It was, it was really like other than street preaching, uh, which they had me doing when I was a little kid. I was probably eight or nine years old standing on top of, of a newsstand and, you know, yelling verses at parked cars at a red light. You know, it was kind of a weird, it was a weird upbringing. So I, I did have an interest in filmmaking from the time I was little, though. Um, I read a book on Spielberg when I was eight or nine years old. And, and I read in that book that he started filmmaking when he was about that age, you know, filming his model trains and stuff. And I was like, wow, that's interesting. Because I was experimenting with the family VHS camcorder, you know, doing visual effects with my little brother, and then it, it morphed into telling stories. So this was always kind of my first passion, the thing that I wanted to do more than anything. My parents were deathly afraid of me turning this into a career because it meant going to Hollywood and being corrupted by the world. So they made it clear to me that this is something that you can do as a hobby, but don't even consider doing this as a career. And even into high school, uh, I, I would bring them pamphlets for Bob Jones University that had a film program. Be like, what about this? What if I become a Christian filmmaker? And it was like any mention of it was just shut down. So yeah, like this was my passion. Uh, but eventually I kind of, uh, they, they broke my will. And I decided, okay, I'm going to go surrender to the ministry then. I spent a few years going to the Church Bible Institute uh, at my home church. And then uh, from there, my sister was interested, my sister Rachel was interested in going to West Coast um, to finish out her Bible college years. So I was just kind of tagging along with the family while we were on vacation down there. And Dr. R, Dr. Rasmussen showed us around the campus and... I had never left Idaho, you know, I was uh, 19 years old. So it was like the opportunity for a new adventure. And so he kind of talked me into it. And uh, there was a, a quite a battle actually that had to happen between my dad, who was an assistant pastor at our home church, and the pastor who was adamantly against anybody going to another Bible college besides our church Bible Institute. So my dad won that battle. It was, it was, tense and awkward, but eventually I, I left for Bible college. I transferred credits, and so I came in as a junior. So I, w- I went to West Coast for two years, and I, I excelled there. Um, you know, I guess I was a natural leader. They, put, they made me a room leader my second semester. Uh, then I became a dorm supervisor there, and then I was brought on staff. I, I, I led, like, the summer internship program for, you know, the, the, uh, the guys, and then I, I went on staff uh, after I graduated. This is like 2007 to 2008. Yeah. So anyway, that's kind of the background of, of what led me all the way to the IFB. We have a pretty similar background. The only difference is like my 
my family and like I feel like I won the lottery as far as the IFB goes of like my family from day one was like, oh, you're probably going to be a filmmaker. You're probably going to be this. Like you're very artistic. They never pushed me to be like, oh, be a pastor or do this. Like, and so I had that support system, but I, I always felt in a lot of ways, like, especially near the end, I felt like I was like, I didn't fit when we went to youth conference and they talk about like, oh, follow God's will. I was like, all the pictures they're giving of God's will don't look like me. <laughs> like, I don't, my personality, my interests, like my God-given talents don't fit this picture you're showing me. And so I always felt there was like this kind of rift between me and the IFB, even though I, I believed at the time, like that's where I have to be is the IFB because that's the right way. That's the right way to live. That's the right way to, to have your faith. Um, did you feel that kind of rift as well? Like, did you ever feel like, is there something outside of this? Or did you feel constrained, like even in college, like, well, where else am I going to go? Like, this is as close to my dreams as I'm going to get right now. Yeah. You know, that's an interesting question because I didn't, I didn't necessarily feel that pressure to be in the full-time ministry as much, at least not for my church. My mm. parents really wanted me to be in the full-time ministry, but it wasn't until I went to West Coast where it was like the only option. It's right. like yeah. either you go to full-time ministry or you suck, you know? Or, you, well, you, actually, you or you do one year of Bible and then you can do whatever you want to do. But at the end of the one year, <laughs> yeah. full-time ministry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there's definitely some strong, you know, that's sort of like, you know, that's that's the way that they uh, they get you in so they can start upselling you is that one-year Bible program. So once I was at West Coast, I really felt the pressure because it's not only coming from the top, but all your friends are buying into it. And all your friends are like, I'm going to plant a church here. I'm going to go be a missionary there. And you're like, I got to have a plan, you know, because I don't want to be left out. So I actually, I came up with this idea that I needed to go plant a church in, you know, Washington or Oregon, you know, that I was burdened for the Northwest. And that's kind of what I was running with for like a year or two. And Paul Chapel was, you know, kind of, guiding me towards that goal. And that was part of what he brought me on staff for was to kind of, you know, mentor me um, to to end up to plant a church. What was your position on staff? I did multiple things. So that was that year or so on staff was when I was a dorm supervisor for the college. I was a teacher in the school, which I should not have been a teacher in the school, but it was cheap. So they had me doing that. I was teaching seventh grade science, eighth grade science, and eighth grade Bible. And then I was also working with the youth department. I worked with Carrie Schmidt then. Uh, yeah, and I taught like the junior high Sunday school class. Got it. So nothing with media at all at West Coast? Well, yeah. So toward the, toward the end, because I was friends with Larry, still am to this day, who's super into video. That's Paul's son. Um, and he knew that I, I was into video. And... I went to teen camp um, as a, you know, as a counselor, but Larry kind of roped me into helping him do the videos for, for that camp. And Carrie Schmidt just loved the stuff that we were making. We would make highlight videos at the end of each day, you know, kind of showing all the activities and we'd set, we kind of set a theme and it was a lot of fun. And Carrie was like the one who told me that I need to, to start getting more involved with the video stuff at, at the church. So after I stepped away from being on staff there, Paul actually reached back out to me and, you know, offered for me to go and be a full-time video guy on staff. And I turned that down um, because I, I I was starting to have my own 
thing that I was building kind of by accident. And that kind of came about because my roommate uh, from my very first semester in college was going to go be a missionary to Rwanda. And he knew that I was into video stuff. And he was like, hey, will you help me make a presentation, which I'd never done before. But this is right at the beginning of like the DSLR revolution, like 2009, 2010. And uh, I was like, you know, I think we could do something kind of cinematic. Um, and so he f- he flew me down to Trona, California, where he was uh, an assistant pastor. And we made this little presentation. And it turned out pretty well. And he, of course, he took that around from church to church to raise support to be a missionary. And as he did that, this kind of unforeseen byproduct of that was that uh, he was like a salesman, a traveling salesman for my video work. And so I started getting all these phone calls from other pastors and missionaries going, hey, I saw, you know, Brother Mike's video. Will you do one for us? And so in about a year's time, it turned into a full-time thing for me. And to to the point where eventually I traveled to 46 states and 27 or 28 different countries shooting video for, for IFB churches. West Coast is an interesting beast. And, and people that you talk to who work there, you know, I mean, depending on who you talk to and what period of their life you talk to them and all have different opinions. But, um, you know, one of the things that constantly comes up is like it's a very fast paced, like work heavy tense kind of environment. That's, that's a vibe I get a lot. Was that kind of your experience or did you feel like it was not so much of like a, like, did it feel like it was a, a rough period of time or did it Oh, it was like- awful. I hated yeah. it. I hated my time there. Uh, I was miserable even in the moment, even when I'm kind of like so close to it and kind of have the blinders on, I was very conscious of, of how miserable I was. Uh, they, they really were working us to death, you know, um, and and it was even explicitly said to the staff things like you're not doing ministry till you've passed 40 hours a week. And so like they expected you like 40 hours a week what they're paying you for. It's your bare minimum. Is yeah. the bare minimum. And you know, you should really be doing double like double that if you're truly serving the Lord. So yeah, that it was an, an a very intense environment and that came straight from the top, you know. Paul Chapel's just an intense dude. He's, uh, he's very domineering, very intimidating. You know, I still remember being in those Friday staff meetings and everybody's, you know, there's a buzz in the crowd as everybody's talking and then the doors fly open and here comes Paul, like he's the freaking president of the United States and a hush falls over the crowd, you know, because there's the man of God. And, you know, sometimes he was just in a mood and he would rip us. You know, and and he would tell us on a regular basis stuff like, until each of you wins 10 tithing members, 10 tithing families, you are a liability and not an asset to this ministry, you know? And so it was an interesting, like, wow, what an interesting way to look at the church members, you know, basically as a form of revenue, which of course they are in practical terms. But it was just like that. That was the emphasis. It's like not that's ten souls. It's ten tithing members. You know. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was an intense environment. And uh, you know, I had I had a few run-ins uh, that kind of soured soured me to to West Coast and to particularly to uh, to Lancaster Baptist. You know, I, I maybe he he was well intentioned. I but I think that Paul Chapel wanted to crack the whip on me. He really wanted to, you know, whip me into shape. And, you know, 
man, my very first week on staff, I thought I had arrived because, you know, I spent the time in Bible college thinking like going on staff at, at Lancaster Baptist is the pinnacle of ministry. And here I had been asked to be on staff and I was like, man, I, I've arrived. So I'm in my classroom and uh, teach, teach my very first week of, of school. And if you back up two weeks before that, me and this guy named Bo Johnson had made this music video. He, he made up this silly song about basically asking, trying to, trying to date in Bible college. And uh, we made this music video that this is before Facebook, really, it kind of went viral just by students on campus sharing it like by USB drive. And so this this video spread like wildfire and it was really funny and and totally tame. But the music director there, Les Wall, uh, super conservative dude, he was not happy when he when he saw that video. And so what what happened, long story short, was he phoned up Paul Chapel and was like, hey, one of your staff members has made this music video that's like sensual and all this kind of stuff. And so Paul Chapel uh, told Brother Weaver, who was the dean of men, he's like, tell Andrew that he needs to write me a letter detailing, detailing all the reasons he should remain on staff. This is my first week there. And come to find out later, he hadn't even seen the video yet. So I am, I'm like in my classroom writing out this letter with tears in my eyes because I'm like, I've already blown this opportunity. One of the most humiliating moments of my life. And uh, I go and I, I hand the letter to Paul Chapel, and, you know, he graciously allows me to stay on staff. And then I find out later from Larry that he actually saw the video later and loved it and thought it was hilarious. But I never received any a kind of apology back for that. And Bo was made to stand up in front of 800 uh, fellow college students and, and make a big apology as well. So there was this kind of like real strong arming going on, you know, uh, public shaming. And I was a part of that. You know, that was one example, but there was you know, other examples as well. I won't go into all the details, but yeah, stuff like that really did sour my, my taste for it. It doesn't seem like the sexual abuse was as rampant there as it is in like a Hiles or a golden state. And I always just ponder, I'm like, is it because they're better at <laughs> sweeping that stuff under the rug or is it because it didn't happen? Did you get any sense of that while you were there at all? I didn't, okay. Th- you know, there were other kind of little bit shady things that I, right. I was witness to, but I was not uh, privy to any kind of sexual abuse that okay. I can recall. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just they, always curious. Yeah. They had their own skeletons. Right. Over there. You know, Could there was I the whole. on that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, there's the whole Whitman thing, mm-hmm. you know, are you familiar with that, that story? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I've never got into it on the show. Like I, it definitely comes up in the group because that is one of the weird that Mike Zachary and like one or two other things come up a lot and they all are pretty interesting. But my connection with the Whitman thing is his brother actually attended my church growing up and, um, and was married to my pastor's daughter. And so like, I knew that family very well. Um, not Jeremy, but I knew his brother and, you know, his wife and, you know, his, uh, his cousin and stuff would come to the church and stuff like that. So like, but yeah, I remember when that story happened, seeing in real time, like, the statement go up, the statement come down, the statement change, the statement go back mm-hmm. up. 
Yeah. And it was one of the first times out of West Coast where I was like, did they just did they just alter what they released about the situation? And um but anyway, I'll I'll let you talk about it. But that was one of the things where it was like and it's another one of those uncomfortable ones to like really dive into because it's like I know people connected and it is at the end of the day, there's a very tragic element to that story. Yeah. So it's yeah. like it's one of those what benefit does it bring to to dig too much into it? Because I, I think at the end of the day, we're never gonna know. You know what I mean? Like what really happened. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't have a lot of salacious details that I can share. Um just in summary, you know, I was disappointed with the way that it was portrayed to the public because, yeah. you know, having been on staff and having been close with the Chapel family, I knew just just how integral Jeremy Whitman was to that ministry. Yeah. I, I mean, he was at the Chapel's house nearly every day. You know, he was waiting hand and foot on them. He, he was a good personal assistant, but but the vibe that they were putting out was like, you know, this guy didn't, he wasn't really involved. He was not a staff member or wasn't, you know, on the pastoral staff or whatever, right. but it's like, he totally was. Yeah. So it was, it was definitely some kind of like, uh, you know, mm, a little bit of deceitfulness. Yeah. Well, I remember when that news broke um, and like, I just remember reading the article and then reading the statement. I was like, he's in all of their youth conference videos. He's like front and center of all this stuff. And then on top of that, it was like, you know, stuff Fundy's like, which, you know, they, they released like the staff manual, which had him listed as associate pastor, you know, that same year. But it was just one of those things where it was like, and, and that's what happened with Zachary too. There was a statement and then it was like kind of weird. And then like, they pulled it down, Golden State put one up and put it down. And then the both of them put the same one that corresponded out together it was just really weird, but like that's the that's the thing with, and I, I want to go back to this because this is kind of all ties together. Is like when you talk about Chapel, the vibe that I get, and I talk with people about this sometimes, is like he is one of those guys who would have easily made it in corporate America. Like if he had done, if he wanted to build a Fortune 500 company, he definitely could have. Yeah, um, but with West Coast, you know, I think and I wish he these, had. By the way, right, I wish well, that's he, what he had done. Well, he kind of did just build a big business out yeah. in, the, in the desert. But it's one of those things where it's like, I feel like West Coast is kind of safe from a lot of the sexual abuse stuff because of like how big of an adverse effect that would have on the ministry. You know what I mean? Like it feels like West Coast more than Hiles because like Hiles just earnestly does like really bad stuff. I feel like <laughs> West Coast, yeah. it's keeping the brand alive. Like we are this very tight ship. And um, anyway, I, I was just curious about it because I haven't heard from anybody, which makes me happy that that's not. But I'm always curious to know, like, if I'm missing something, because they seem to be like one of the few IFB colleges that doesn't have this long laundry list of like abuse cases under it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I'll give them credit for that. So kind of stepping out on your own and, you know, becoming a videographer. And this is like where I think everybody probably knows your name from who's in the IFB world, at least within that time period. Um, you know, you were working a lot and you were, you know, you already mentioned you worked in almost every state. You were like in 20 like some countries. Um, and we kind of share that experience in that, you know, I did the same thing. Like I just went from church to church and shot promo videos and school videos and ministry videos. Um, what was that experience like? Was it, I, I, I got to assume it was thrilling at, at first, you know, getting to be out on your own. Yeah, it was, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, uh, what, what I, fi what I figured out about myself when I was in Bible college and then on, on staff 
was that I'm a bird that's not meant to be caged. I need, I need my freedom. And so in a sense, yeah, like figuring out how to build my own video production business where I could also travel the world was thrilling. It was, uh, it was an awesome experience. That's not to say that every client I worked for was an awesome experience, but overall I enjoyed it. You know, there was kind of ultimately what it it was the undoing of my faith ultimately, um, which I can get to. But um, there was a lot of valuable lessons that I learned along the way. One observation I made, and maybe you made the same, was that the whole idea of all these churches being independent was a total misnomer. Yeah. You know, they are completely interconnected and they are, they will hold each other hostage you know, over differences in uh, standards, you know, you let this kind of music in, you're no longer in our, our circle, a fellowship, you know, that guy plays this kind of music before, you know, before the church service starts, so we don't fellowship with him. And so they keep everybody in check with the standards uh, in this way. And so it's been a decade since I was really, really tight into, into that world. So maybe things have changed, but, you know, when I was in the thick of it, I was like, you know, yeah. I was less than impressed with how how little independence all these churches really had. Yeah, that's a that's a big point, and that's one of the reasons that you know I keep mentioning our shared experience doing this. Um, and you you did it on a much larger scale than I did, but I went to probably I mean seventeen states. Um, I was in you know three different countries. You know, um, I did it for about two years, um, and. You and know, you enjoyed it overall? Yeah. Oh, oh, a hundred percent. Like I enjoyed getting on a plane and going like up until then, like my trips were, I went to Arizona or we yeah. drove up to New Mexico and like to get put on a plane and fly to Hawaii to shoot, you know, videos on the beach or like shoot a new church plant or to get to fly out to, um, you know, like Virginia and then go to, you know, Washington DC in the middle of the night. Like that kind of stuff was awesome. And, and, you know, I was just excited to be behind the camera. Like, but there was also the same thing. I was less than impressed with a lot of the stuff that I started seeing, especially I wouldn't say in the first half, because like, I almost felt scared to feel like disgusted by some of the stuff I saw because it was like, well, they're churches, you know, like I, I can't be mad at a church or be disgusted by a church, but it was one of those things where seeing all these churches in such close close proximity and churches that by for all intents and purposes as independent churches shouldn't look anything like each other because they're a church in Hawaii shouldn't look like a church in Virginia if they're totally independent of each other. But one of the things that people often critique the show about is that you lump all the IFB together. And I'm like, I've been to a very large sampling of IFB churches in a variety of different States, a variety of different countries. You know, I've, I've, I mean, I, I've served as a missionary for two years and like I had support coming in from North Valley, you know, like I I've seen how all these churches operate and what they do. And to say that they're independent is disingenuous at best. <laughs> like, like I, I told someone a while back, like the first word that independent fundamental Baptists used to describe themselves is a blatant lie. Like there's no independence <laughs> so in that world. No. There no. are there are some that are independent, but they usually like aren't 
I have B for very long. They usually end up being something else like a Josh Tice or, you know, Josh Hermel or someone like that. So um, what's some of the things that you saw that did kind of bother you or frustrate you as you kind of moved around? Was it just that they were disingenuous about being independent or was it a specific kind of attitude trait or like some kind of moral thing that you started feeling weird about? I mean, there was, there were so many things I, I just to summarize, I guess, um, you know, I, I saw a lot of, um, a lot of, of deceitfulness going on, hmm. you know, and, and, and it was born out of the need to conform to the IFB standards. Yeah. Right. So an example of that would be oh, probably a half dozen different pastors, um, for some reason, maybe maybe because I was like this third party coming in, maybe it's the vibe I gave off. I don't know, but people felt comfortable confessing things to me. I know, yeah. <laughs> Did this happen with you too? Yeah, man. Um, just I mean, case in point, I was at a church in. Um, I won't name it because it's kind of a petty thing to talk about. But yeah. I, I just remember I visited a church, and the guys drive me back to my hotel room, and like I think it's part of it's because you're out at three in the morning after getting like cheap food, and you're just talking. But I just remember, like, I just filmed the pastor speaking, and then, like, the guy driving back was, like, complaining because he was like, I was supposed to be the next one up and was supposed to be the next pastor. And there's another guy who thinks he's going to be the pastor, and he's all upset about it. And it was like a a high school girl being like, oh, he made, you know, she made cheer team, but I didn't kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And I was just, like, sitting there, I'm like, I'm, like, 18, and you're, like, dumping that you're, like, not in the ministry position you want. But there was all kinds of stuff like that where you'd just be sitting in the car. You just had like the greasiest fast food ever that they they would give you. <laughs> and you're driving back to your cheap hotel and they're like just dumping all of this drama on you. Well, you're lucky if they put you at a cheap hotel. A lot of times they put you in with some random church family or a, about a disgusting <laughs> prophet's chamber. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so like, what was some of the stuff that you would feel like people would talk to you about a little bit? Man, I wish I could remember all the different stories, but I can tell you that there must have been a half a dozen different pastors who told me that they will go to the next town over, or when they're on vacation and they're away from anywhere they might run into a church member, that they go to the movies. But over the pulpit, they preach hard against the movie theater, uh, or that they'll wear shorts and that their their wives and, d- and daughters will wear shorts or, or jeans or whatever when they're on vacation. They didn't believe this stuff that they that they were preaching, but but that was the standard they were supposed to maintain. Because if you take your youth group to a camp and you're meeting with a bunch of other churches there, and your teens are wearing jeans and short shorts, and everybody else is in you know culottes and skirts, you know it's it's not going to be long before you're anathematized. So, so there was a lot of this disingenuousness that I, I was privy to. Yeah. I, I always chuckle when I see, you know, IFP pastors rail against the seeker sensitive movement because the independent Baptists in many ways were very seeker sensitive. They were looking for IFB seekers who would, mm. were looking for the tight dress code, the King James only, you know, I, I can't tell you all the pastors I've talked to where, oh, we use the King James because, you know, our people expect that. And, you know, it's like. So it's not yeah. because of any other reason than people might get up upset. And uh, I, I already know that my mom will get upset because she listens to the show. But <laughs> but like my my family, you know, my family's very much like, okay, it's the rule. So we follow it, you know, with the staff side. But, 
you know, like for the long t- for the longest time, and she'll fight me on it now. But I swear, this is exactly what was told to me when I was growing up. It was like we don't go to the movies because all the staff signs a piece of paper that says we can't go to the movies. Yeah. And right after I'd graduated, my parents started going to the movies. I was like, what? <laughs> you know? And they said, well, now we can go to the movie theater, but we have to go to the next town over. So that way, like that was the rule. Now we have to go to the next town over. So people don't recognize us and assume we're seeing a bad movie. Yeah. I was like, yeah. I was like that's so weird. Like that's yeah. like if it's either wrong or not, like it, it's one of those things where it's like, it's not less wrong if you go 30 minutes away. So right. it's like, is it just totally a hypocrisy, like appearances thing? Or is it like, oh, it's not wrong and we made a mistake. But yeah. it's rare that you're going to get a church to say we made a mistake. <laughs> oh, but. no. Yeah, it's the stumbling block argument, I think, yeah. at that point. It's like, yeah, you, you just want to have a good testimony. Which, by the way, the whole idea of a testimony has always been strange to me. Because it's like, who are we really living our lives for? Like other, Like, just to impress other Christians with our standards? Or... Right to actually be some kind of a witness for Christ, you know, and like, like what is, what is the definition of a testimony to these people? Because I, I think in a lot of cases, the way they live is very unappealing to the average secular-minded person, you know? Right. Like, weird things like, uh, you know, demanding that the, the restaurant you're eating at turn off the, the music that's playing over the speakers, you know? Right. Or like, like, I remember Sam Gipp telling a story one time to our church about how he uh he was out to you know lunch at a restaurant or something like that and he was praying over over the food and the waitress came up and interrupted the prayer and that he read read her the riot act for doing that and it's like do you think that's being a good testimony like do you think that she's going to want have to have anything to do with with what you've got because i i don't i think we've got a, a complete um backward idea of what that means you know yeah. so yeah Talk talk to me a little bit about the the experiences with Sam Gibb because I feel like that was the end like near the end of your videography career as far as the IFB goes because that was kind of like right before I went on staff at Pro Church in 2013 so that was like 2012 ish yeah did those yeah 2011 yeah yeah and what you're referring to is this this video series called the Big Deal KJV series right so you see as we look at today. <clears throat> that and I'll tell you guys the the question of the century is the final authority. That is the question. It's not world peace. It's not world hunger. It is what is the final authority. And, and I showed you it is not man. It is certainly not education. And by no means is it science. Our final, absolute final authority in all matters of faith and practice is the Bible. And when I'm talking about the Bible, I'm not talking about some imaginary book that exists out there in the ether. I'm talking about a book that I'm holding in my hand right now. This book is the absolute final authority in all matters of faith and practice. I had been doing these church videos for years at this point, gotten, you know, some decent uh, experience. And I was kind of um, wrangled in to be a part of this video series. And the idea behind it was to really... Uh, once and for all settle this King James only issue for people and put out like this series that's kind of almost done in a narrative format where, you know, uh, this Bible college student is struggling with his, you know, belief in, in the King James Bible and Sam Gipp has all the answers. So, uh, I was, I was hired to basically make it look pretty and in doing so add, um, validity 
to right. what what they were doing because you know you you know this as well like if you can make something look polished and look nice there there's some weight behind it right all of a sudden and so that was very very much a part of the intention so uh it was kind of a weird experience because i went into it thinking yeah there's some questions that i have even after all of all of my upbringing being in this church and and learning Greek over four semesters, I'm still not convinced that the King James Bible is like this infallible word of God. So I really hope this answers my questions. So I'd be in on these brainstorming sessions with Sam and some of these other guys that were involved. And I would throw out some ideas like, hey, what if you addressed this question? You know, And Sam would say, like, oh, we don't have a good answer for that. And so it started to shake me a little bit. And, you know, I thought the first episode was was a decent. It was talking about the difference between Alexandria and Antioch. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. But then it started going off the rails after that episode. And there was these these weird illustrations that were supposed to hold all this weight as to why why use the King James Bible. Like the end of episode two or three, can't right. remember, was this was this whole thing of of he gave a, a different version of the Bible to everybody at this Bible study and had them read Psalm 27 or whatever. I just pulled that up because that's like my favorite clip from the whole thing. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And they all read it aloud. And the fact that they're all reading different sounding texts is for some reason, the you know, uh, evidence that the King James Bible is the word of God. I never quite made that leap myself. I got it. I oh, got yeah, that, it really quick because it's yeah. so funny. That, I, that was where I was like, I was already kind of past the um, like King James only thing. Yeah. And this was like the, the funniest, the funniest <laughs> clip. <laughs> I haven't seen this in so long, dude. Real quick. I, I feel like you've come in here and okay, you've shown us some problems with our Bible and some of it's funny and and you just come in here and you're just causing division now between us when we're trying to learn the Bible together. Well, I understand the sentiment of that statement and sometimes it is construed that way like you King James guys are causing division and if it wasn't for that, we would have unity. But unity is just that. Think about this. Probably no portion of scripture known to the world lost or saved better than Psalm 23 out of a King James Bible. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. So even a lost world knows what that sounds like out of a King James Bible. How about we just do it? How about we just all read? We'll read from all the versions you have. We'll read Psalm 23 in unison and see how it sounds. Okay. Now, before we read this, we all acknowledge from the Bible that God is not the author of confusion. Got him. <laughs> Setting it up. <laughs> the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not be afraid, Lord, for you are with me. Your shepherd's rod and staff protect me. Thou spreadest a table before me in the sight of mine enemies. Thou hast richly my cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. Love will be with me all my life, and your house will be my Lord forever. Now what one word? best describes what you just heard got him yeah <laughs> mic drop 
<laughs> I love that it's the it's the shot into into Nate right there that always gets me that. Oh no. Oh god. All right. Sorry. Wow. I, that, I was thinking of that clip. That right was amazing. You, uh, right when you. Yeah. Thank you for playing that. What a trip just... down memory lane. <laughs> I still remember the way we cut together those Bible turning page like shots like it was like an action sequence we were like oh that's so cool need some lens flares but uh (laughs) yeah that's all we're uh, missing yeah man so yeah gip's an interesting character um to say the least um yeah so so what was he like because i so like i've i mean he's blocked preacher boys on twitter uh but uh but um yeah he's just an interesting dude like you watch clips of him you know, and I, I think it's because he is like such a weird character. Like he tends to get a little bit more publicity than he probably would normally yeah. with his. Yeah, he's super system. eccentric. Yeah, he he. Here's the thing: he is genuinely a very funny person. Yeah. Like I feel like when you're listening to his sermons, like he's, you know, in a way, kind of living out some kind of fantasy of an alternate reality where he's a stand-up comedian because mm-hmm. he's just constantly you know quipping the whole time telling funny stories and he's an entertaining speaker but he's also uh a real jerk of a person you know i already shared the story about him telling off the waitress for interrupting his prayer uh and he would share stories like this all the time of uh you know times where he was being completely unchristlike, but saying it like he was, uh, you know, he's the hero of the story and everybody is amening this behavior, you know, Mm. from, from the pews. So, um, you know, when we were working together on these videos, I did get, I I got to spend some significant time with him and, uh, you know, in, in one sense, he's a, he's a likable guy. In another, another sense, there's some real, um, flawed characteristics you know um i i would even say that there's some some racist tendencies he's certainly a a xenophobe there's a there's a clip on um that comes from that ruckman background for sure yeah well yeah he's a he's total uh disciple of of ruckman and uh there's a clip on youtube i think i think the channel is called bad preachers or something like that where gip is just going off on the greatness of america Mm-hmm. And he's talking about how other countries who wave their flag with pride have nothing to be proud of. You know, it's American exceptionalism. I'm going to talk to you about uh, about the country li- you live in. You know, Americans are are uh, uh, are proud of their country. You know, one of the things I try to tell people, you know, really, we did not invent patriotism, but we perfected it. Okay, we really did. Uh, we have got a flag that we can be proud of. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm serious. I have to laugh when I see some countries, you know, they wave their flag like they're doing something and like they got something to be proud of, and they have nothing to be proud of. And what's happened is because Americans love their country, all these other countries say, oh, yeah, we have to love our country. Well, we love our country. We can start talking today about what it's great and be talking for a week. And those guys go, well, our country's great. Uh, our, our country's great because well, our country's great. <laughs> no, no, it's not. And, uh, you know, so there's that. And, you know, if you're a xenophobe, you're half a step away from being a racist. And so, you know, there was one time we were out after a brainstorming session and Sam told this very weird story. My brother was there so he could corroborate this. And he told a story about how once he was on a bus uh, and the bus, there was a, a bunch of black people on the bus and there was a black driver. 
And there was some kind of a, a loud backfire uh, that happened. Maybe it was the bus or a vehicle outside the bus. And he said that all of a sudden, all the black people on the bus stood up and started rushing ahead. And the, and the bus driver like told him to go back to your seats. It's not yet time. And he was theorizing that uh, what he was witnessing was people trying to jump the gun on this race war and that all the black people were in on this secretly, you know, it was like a really strange story. Uh, you know, as he told it, it, it struck me even then as like, that's, that's odd. And uh, like you said, I think a lot of this is just born out of uh, the Ruckmanite movement. Ruckman was a bona fide racist. You know, um, I shared a clip on my Facebook recently where Ruckman says the only reason he didn't join the Ku Klux Klan was because they were anti-Semitic. If they hadn't been anti-Semitic, and of course, you know, for them, like, you know, backing Israel is everything. If if they hadn't been anti-Semitic, he said he would have joined the Klan. So that's crazy. And, uh, you know, Ruckman's, Ruckman spouted all kinds of race, racist slurs over the pulpit of my home church. There, there was at least three different occasions where Ruckman would be at our preaching conference, and for, he was obsessed with Nazis, and he would uh, start playing a Nazi march on his harmonica in front of the church during a sermon, and then do the Heil Hitler Nazi salute in the middle of, of this harmonica solo, basically playing a, a, a Nazi march as he was doing this. And, uh, you know, it was weird. It was very strange. And so, uh, yeah, the racism also crept into the home church to some degree. Although I think if I had been down at Pensacola Bible Institute, PBI, I would have gotten a much stronger dose of it. One of my best friends growing up went there and uh, he, he went off the rails after he went to school there. But I remember being in my home church, um, going to the Institute and there being racism preached as doctrine. You know, and I think I think for that reason, they're kind of unapologetically racist when they talk about, you know, that the mark of Cain was that God turned Cain into a black man so that everybody knows he was cursed. Right. And this is like a doctrinal teaching. This is where the black race comes from. And so that's what I was taught, you know, even in, at the Sunday school level of the church. And uh, but but the teacher who's since passed away, so I won't I won't say his name, but the teacher uh, was talking about how. Um, the differences between black men and white men and how the curse remains to this day and how there's no, you know, there's no successful all black countries, you know, they're all third world. And then he, he would do weird things like he, he drew a straight line on the, on the whiteboard and then he drew a squiggly line next to it. And he said, you know, top, you have a white man's hair and underneath you have a black man's hair. And that, that, you know, squiggly line indicates that they're cursed. Um, just all of these weird anecdotes you know, that were incredibly racist. And I'm looking around at all of these very impressionable, uh, you know, all these impressionable Bible college students who are just soaking in this terrible information, you know, and even amening it. And it was very, it was very disturbing to me. And it was actually that lesson that made me go to the assistant pastor at the time who ran the Institute. And I said, look, you know, there's this racism being taught uh, in the, in the Institute and I can't continue to go here. If, if something is not done, if he's not removed, this, if this teacher's not removed from being a teacher, not only was he not removed, but the next week he was preaching in the main service. Um, and that was the beginning of the end for, for me going to church there 
when I realized that the racism was uh, still very much integral integral in, in the church and wasn't going away. How old were you at this point? So this is like... This is after after Bible college. Yeah, the, the backstory there is that I, I never finished the Bible Institute at my home church. Like I said, there was a lot of tension over me leaving, transferring my credits to West Coast. So when I finally came back, the assistant pastor talked me into finishing up my degree back at home as well and getting my, my Bible Institute diploma. And so I, I just had like one semester left. And it was like only two or three weeks in to this class on Genesis that this racism started being taught. And I was like, I can't do it. So I never did finish. You had the same exposure as many of the other people in your class. Like, why do you think you kind of woke up at that point and said like, oh, this is racist? Like, what brought out that instead of an amen from you as well? Yeah. Um, well, you know, even when I when I was younger... And I was on the receiving end of some of those racist jokes within the church. It still bothered me even then. Okay. You know, I'm, I'm Mexican, half Mexican. My dad's fully Mexican. He was on staff at the church. And it was kind of just commonplace to, to make Mexican jokes. And I don't know that a lot of them were, were meant in any kind of really mean-spirited way. It was just a very kind of casual, callous way of joking around. But I remember one particular instance where you know, sitting in church, the pastor was giving the announcements and my dad had kind of, he had messed up which day or which time a certain event was going to be going on. And the pastor was confused and he looked down at my dad and he's like, you know, when is this? And it was kind of this weird tense moment, you know, and again, there's like six, 700 people just, just sitting and watching this awkward moment go down. And then the pastor turned, he said, this is what you get when you hire a Mexican for an assistant. And then the whole crowd laughs, right? And I, I was probably about 15, 16 years old. And that was a really pivotal moment for me where I was like, I, I felt very hurt. Like, why, why are you calling out the color of our skin in front of all these people? And why is everybody laughing? It really hit me in that moment. Hmm. And so that stuck with me. And there was a bunch of other stuff that had happened along the way, too. I, I mean, my own friends would, would make racist jokes toward me because it was just part of the culture yeah. of, the, of the church. So... I think after I had I'd gone to West Coast and gotten a different experience there and had been um, traveling more, you know, it was opening my my mind a bit more. I was expanding my horizons. And so it, it got to the point where I felt um, a stronger sense of agency. You know, I was becoming my own person. And um, I, I felt like I could finally, because, you know, it's such a close-knit community. The whole idea of of separating away from it your your support group, your social circle is terrifying. And so uh, I, I think I finally felt comfortable enough based on um, traveling the world and, and meeting other people to um, officially leave the church. And th- yeah. this is probably seven or eight years ago now. One of the things that I see a lot in churches, like I see these jokes or these comments, like, you know, usually it's like this fear mongering comment about like, well, you know what Muslims actually are planning to do and teaching. And it's like, have you ever met a Muslim? Like, like not even like, have you ever been friends? Like, have you ever met a Muslim and talked to them ever? And yeah. most people honestly are like, no, <laughs> I grew up in my tight religious bubble. And, and honestly, this is one of my biggest, you know, one of my biggest frustrations with, you know, 
honestly, like evangelicalism at large is the lack of willingness to have conversations with people who are different. And there's no empathy. There's no trying to understand. And yeah, it's one of the things that's really, it hasn't hurt my, it hasn't hurt my faith. It's hurt my desire to be with the Christian community. Um, mm. And I know there's going to be people listening to that who get mad, but it's one of those things where like I go to places like India and I sit with some of the most gracious, kind, sweet people I've ever met who, you know, would do anything to help somebody else. And I just think if they came here and sat in some of these churches, like they'd be treated like secondhand, you know, second class citizens. Oh, for sure. And, you know, I, that's where I just circle back. People are going to get upset about it. I already know. I already know people are going to get upset about it. But it's like you talk about Sam Gipp being this weird figure and like this, you know, American exceptionalism and, you know, casual racism and just very demeaning toward people. And like, yeah, that sounds crazy. But then it's also like he was just a less polished version of what was mainstream in that movement, you know, like he mm. was sure a subculture of the IFB, but I mean, I, I remember watching a clip. It drives me crazy. I can't find it. Cause I I've watched it so many times was, I remember Jack Hiles having a, a Mexican man on the, on the stage. And he, um, he was doing a soul winning demonstration where he says he went to Gus's guzzling place and like pushes him down and makes him pray. And it was always like a big joke. He did it at a few different conferences, but I remember him, Asked him, he said, what are you? And he said, you know, I'm a Mexican. And he said, that's nothing but a secondhand Puerto Rican or a second class Puerto Rican or something stupid like that. Wow. And people want to say, uh, you know, we did an episode on racism and happy. People went so crazy about it. Like, oh, it's not a big part. Like there's a couple. I'm like, Jack Hiles pastored the largest IFB church. And that joke flew really well <laughs> in that congregation. No one stood up and said something. Yeah. And. So it's it's one of those things I see guys like Sam Gipp. I'm like, he's kind of just the most honest about where these positions actually take you. Um, yeah, that's a good point. I, I'm curious. You, you'd mentioned earlier, um, you know, going to these churches, seeing such a broad grouping of independent Baptists kind of did kind of lead to you kind of chipping away at your faith a little bit. Yeah. Um, I'm curious to talk to you about that and you know, what that means, because I mean, everybody, everybody uses kind of vague terminology when they talk about their faith, you know, like for me, I feel like super mysterious when I say my faith journey or my faith mm -hmm. experience. Um, so how did it affect your, your personal faith kind of being exposed to all these different churches? And really, I mean, if iron sharpens iron, like you should be the sharpest tool in the shed because you were around all of these different huge leaders, Jack Treber, Paul Chapel, um, Sam get like all these huge names in that world. Yeah. Um, so what was it that kind of like shook you? Was it, was it kicked off by mainly the racism or was it something else that really started chipping away? No, you know, it wasn't born out of bitterness. Yeah. Uh, I'm not, you know, it, it really wasn't something like, uh, uh I wasn't angry. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it really first started with me questioning um, if if my standards were correct, right? So, like, I remember being in Africa early on doing a project and um, shooting these Africans who were singing and dancing. And it was definitely like, I, I was like, if this was happening, this style of music was happening back in America 
in an IFB church, it wouldn't fly. You know, mm -hmm. the, the syncopated beat, the dancing, it's not okay. But I looked at these people, I'm like, wow, they're so joyful. And like, wow, what's, what is wrong with this? Right. So like I, I started questioning the standards, first of all, um, in just getting a large, larger sampling of different ministries and like feeling like a good vibe still. I'm like, okay, so that's, that's interesting. But, um, I guess it's similar to something that you said earlier, which this, the seeds that got planted, uh, for my, faith starting to be questioned, um, I really can kind of, I can narrow it down to two different things. One of them was to travel to places like India and to observe these Hindu people who are so, um, you know, so res resolute with their faith, you know, so at peace with it. Um, and going like, what is what is keeping them going, right? Because I, I was always kind of under this uh, impression like, well, you know, the reason that I'm passionate about what I believe is because I have the truth. And uh, when you start to really think about it, you know, you know, there, there were things like, oh, well, the disciples, they, they would have never gone all the way to become martyrs if, uh, if they didn't really believe it, if it wasn't really yeah. true. But it's like, that's not true of, of Islamic people terrorists you know who who believe that they're they're doing this for religious purposes so that's not true and observing different religions and seeing that that this is bringing peace to to people whether it's you know whether it's the IFB movement whether it's uh, you know much more contemporary version of it or another religion entirely i'm like that's really doing something for that person i started observing this and that kind of that kind of gave me pause and uh, the other thing that happened, and this is really this was the death knell, was when I was doing those those videos with Sam Gipp. Um, all of my faith had this foundation of like, look, the Bible is the inerrant, inerrant, inspired Word of God, and it has to be. If it's not that, then your faith, you know, crumbles. So I always knew that, like in theory, that. That's why we we believed it was, you know, the inspired and errant word of God. But like when that seed was first planted in my mind that perhaps the King James Bible is not inerrant, it really, the floodgates really opened. And it was just in doing my own study, I would start to look at things like if you look at the, through the Gospels and you see how uh, how the, the events do not line up between the different writers of the gospels, you know, in particular, you look at something like how John says, you know, Jesus died the day before the Passover, but Mark says it was the day after that's irreconcilable. And so you, what you have to, to do is go like, okay, so there's human error. There's human error that's in the Bible. And once that happens, you know, you quickly realize that you have to become the authority that it's not the Bible anymore, because if you can't really trust that the Bible's accurate in every way, what can you trust at all? And so that led me down a path. That led me down a path of questioning a whole lot of things. And and it was a very scary prospect at first because, you know, to to question your whole belief system with <clears throat> hell, your eternal destination on the line was hell. like, wow, I, I don't know if I can do this. But you know, what I what I figured out really quick was um, I had to, I had to kind of admit that everybody baseline 
is an agnostic. You have everybody's agnostic, and you have de facto theists, and you have de facto atheists. But but nobody knows. You know, you can say you know. I said I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was real, and my you know my faith was the true faith. I said that all along, but uh, I realized really quick that that was uh, just an artifice. And so once I finally could like admit that that I'm really an, an agnostic, and everybody else is too, they just don't want to admit it. You know, then it would, then it became a lot less scary. You know, like I don't look at, I, I never looked at, uh, you know, what the, the LDS religion or, or what Islam, you know, what, what are the consequences for not following their faith where it never scared me. And that very quickly became how I looked at, at the Christian faith. Like it, it didn't scare me anymore. Like what the consequences were for not, not believing the way that I was raised to believe. And so, you know, it kind of fell away. That's not to say that I'm an atheist. That's not to say that I'm not even um, spiritual. It's just that uh, I, the the whole uh, facade of religion kind of crumbled for me. And the whole, the whole man-made system crumbled for me. And um, I've gone about trying to, you know, forge a new path for myself ever since then, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. What, what do, I'm just curious, what... People say the word spiritual, and they say, "I'm, you know, I'm spiritual, but not religious." And yeah. you know, you said forging a new path. So, what does spirituality look like for you now, versus what it did, you know, when you were in the midst of a very spiritual movement? Yeah, you know, in a way, I would say I'm a lot more spiritual of a person now than I was back then. And I had intense prayer sessions where I was, you know, sweating, crying out to God, and and I thought that was, you know being spiritual. And, and, and there was some some spiritual experience in that. But uh, what it looks like for me now is mindfulness. You know, I, I try to, um, I try to be in the moment, I try to be connected to the here and now and to my fellow man, in a way that maybe I didn't before. And because there were so many roadblocks in the way for me to like, be able to, to even empathize with anybody who thought differently than I did. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so that in that way, I feel like I have become a lot more of a, of a spiritually minded person. It is kind of a nebulous term, you know, and, and so like, yeah, what, what it looks like for me is like to just be in the moment, in the here mm-hmm. and now, constantly, you know, not thinking about the future. One of the things that I, I think, uh, one of the areas I think that Christians, fundamentalists really go wrong is, you know that saying, don't be so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Mm. I always thought that was just like, when I was, uh, you know, in the movement, I thought that was just uh, a ridiculous thing to, to say. But now I look at it, I'm like, oh, no, there's there is a lot of truth to that. Mm. And uh, the idea there is that, you know, at one point, and I couldn't give you the stats, at one point, I remember reading that, you know, the the, the most obese population in America was in the Bible Belt. And, uh, no. you know, <laughs> yeah, I know. Shocker. Uh, you know, and then also the, you know, just this weird thing that, you know, even though that Christians are, are have this belief that you're supposed to be a steward of God's creation, they were the most reckless people when it came to uh, environmentalism, you know, mm-hmm. and, and actually protecting Earth. You know, the whole mentality of it's all going to burn one day. This is, I think, the the heart of the saying, of being no earthly good, right? Mm-hmm. Is that 
you're not being in the moment. You're you're living for you're living your life in light of the judgment. That was the the saying. And when the religion finally fell away for me, that's what that's what changed fundamentally. Yeah. That's what changed for me was no longer living like um, for the next life, but living for for the moment. Yeah, that's a that's such an interesting point. Um, and it, I mean, there's a couple things. One. I think it's one of the things you hit on is like the inability when you are in a fundamentalist camp, um, whether it's a religious fundamentalist camp or political fundamentalist camp. Um, I think the inability to hear other positions with empathy and with, you know, kindness and understanding, even if you disagree to see the humanity and understand how they got to their position. Um, but the other thing you just mentioned about being no earthly good, I, I think that really speaks to something I feel very strongly, which is, people think so much in terms of eternal perspective, you know, and, you know, they basically, when everything is focused on what's going to eternally last, you treat all the temporal stuff as extremely disposable. And, you know, you see, you see it with the environment, you see it with, um, you know, (laughs) the majority of um, evangelicals don't believe that, you know, climate change is real. I don't know. know, I sit in the camp of like, I've never studied it, but I tend to like, I tend to fall into the spot of like, if the majority of scientists say that something is legitimate and they've studied for years and years and years and actually are scientists, I tend to say, you know, there's probably something, you know, is it overhyped by some probably just like everything is, but is it a total hoax just because, you know, the Bible doesn't mention climate change, you know, that like for me, that's where I'm just like, there has to be some room there. But mm-hmm. yeah, disposable with the environment, disposable with people who don't, you know, propel the cause. Um, you know, I, I think you see that with the IFB. I, I interviewed a lady and said, why do you feel that you were so quickly removed from the church after you were assaulted, but your abuser was kept there? And she said, they, they, they weighed out the two, which one brings more value to the bottom line of the church? And that's mm-hmm. the one that they kept. And, you know, I, I see that so often where it's what's going to hurt Christianity, what's going to hurt the church, what's going to hurt our reputation, what's going to hurt our goal. Like, like if this gets out, are people going to come to our church? And when you're thinking in that terminology, like you're throwing out so many people who deserve value and respect and, you know, empathy and kindness just because they don't fit into your eternal lens And when you start making those judgments for yourself of who has value and what has value and to the point where you start ignoring like things, literally the Bible says has value, which is like you said, stewarding God's creation and taking care of widows and orphans. Like when you're trying to pay off a multi-million dollar facility, widows and orphans become very hard to prioritize, you know? And, um, uh oh, I'm getting onto a rant, but this is one of my things with uh, this is one of my things with with evangelicalism though is and and a lot of times people listen to me and think like oh are you an atheist I, no not at all but one of the things is I sit here and I look at multi million dollar mega churches and I see out of necessity they have to be businesses out of necessity Lancaster Baptist Church has to have this many college students and this many people in the school and it does affect who you can reach out to. I mean, we see this happening with, with golden state with Jack Treber, like they're, they're losing a million (laughs) dollars because their school and their college isn't open. And it's like, 
at that point, can they keep on the Christian mission where Jesus said pure and undefiled religion is caring for widows and orphans in the time of their affliction? Mm. It wasn't building a new modular or building a new building or, you know, or fighting for a new Supreme Court justice, you know, um, it, it was caring for the, the widows and the orphans. Like that was yeah. religion as Jesus spoke it. And so when I sit there and I look at all these churches that are so focused on the legacy of their specific ministry and the name on the building and, you know, creating a new campus or enrolling a certain amount of students, how far we've come from what Jesus said Christianity even is. And we've industrialized American religion and have created this idea of American exceptionalism and becoming this moral majority. And, and that's, that's been what the fight has been. And so as someone who does consider themselves a believer, I feel like a pilgrim in a strange land when I walk into a church and the goal is the love offering and the building fund and, you know, screaming at people who are a different race, religion, or sexual preference. And I just don't see Jesus doing that same thing. And I don't see any moral system doing that. It's mm-hmm. just a very, it's just a very interesting, like, it's just a very interesting thing to see. And and again, we share that travel experience. Like when you travel outside of your own country and you see all these different people living in a very different way, but also being very good people who are very compassionate, kind, caring, and humble, it shatters all of these ideas that you have something totally different in the fact that I'm this white American Christian and I've got the answer, you know, maybe there's, maybe there's something like, maybe we do have some answers, but maybe there's something to learn from someone outside of our own bubble, you know, but yeah, I wish more people would travel. Yeah. Oh man. It's life changing. We lived in Virginia for like three months. It's a long story, but we lived in Virginia for three months and we lived in Reiner, Virginia, which is like, the population is, you know, could fit on a post-it note, you know? And I just remember talking to people at church and they'd be like, Oh, you're from California, you know, liberal California. Yeah. And then, you know, you talk to other people and you'd be like, Oh yeah, we went to India, you know, Dominican, Cuba and all these places. And, Oh, I've never left Reiner. And it's like, you've never left a town of like 400 white people. (laughs) Like you've never left that area. Yeah. It's not good. And, yeah, it's it's it is. It's a powerful, powerful perspective changer. Um, I at this point now, I've been to like it's it's a small number still compared to years, but I've been to I've gotten to go to like twelve or thirteen countries now, yeah. and I feel like I learn more in a few days in a different country than I would have in four years of college. You know, it's it's such a huge change, and it it really comes out when you get into like election cycles like this, and you hear the rhetoric that people use. And, um, it's just shocking. Like, it's just really, really shocking that people have such a closed view of what right and moral is and Mm -hmm. what, what, you know, perfection looks like. (laughs) It's just a very odd situation to be in. But, um, yeah, I was just curious for you to expound on that because like I said, it's, it can be easy for someone to just say, you know, oh, like I'm agnostic or spiritual and I, I'm still spiritual and people don't really usually quantify that. So I appreciate you kind of sharing that. And, sure. Yeah. I've know, never been asked that down. before. So uh, yeah, it was, it was a good thought exercise for me. 
Yeah. So, well, I, I guess now, I mean, I'm just curious what you're up to now. And, um, cause like you, I said before we got on the call, like you're this weird enigma to me because I felt like you were so like just getting rammed into my eyes at every missions conference. Like he was doing this and that and like all these different things and then kind of disappeared. You came back with like ice cream entertainment for a little bit. And then now we're here on the podcast, but I don't really know what's up with Andrew yeah. Garcia now yeah. in the present day. Yeah, I guess I guess I'll I'll try to make a long story short there. So the way that I ended up kind of um ending my relationship with the IFB was that I started a, a blog up and I only did a few posts. But I remember I did I did this one post and it was kind of me just trying to express some of my frustrations with the IFB movement. I did this post and that and the title of it was 30 and under Baptists why we've stuck around and how to keep from losing us. And I don't even remember all the points that I made. It was so long ago. But I do remember it got shared 30,000 times on Facebook. And and that was it. I mean, the the faucet was turned off. And no pastors or missionaries were calling me anymore to, to do work. So I had to reinvent myself in a hurry. Now, thankfully, my brother, who went to Golden State and has his own fascinating journey, was working with me. And um, he... He and I together started working towards new goals. And it was like, hey, you know, we've been doing these church videos. I had made a full a feature length documentary. Um, I, you know, we had been kind of aiming towards maybe being faith based filmmakers, something like the Kendrick brothers. And we quickly got off of that path and we're like, hey, we, we've been telling stories with with video since we were kids. Let's let's keep doing that. And so we started telling our own stories. There was a period of time where we were just doing video contests, you know, full time, Mm -hmm. entering video contests, and we were winning. We made almost $100,000 in just a few months winning video contests, and we were able to kind of fund our own production company with that money. And then we took some of the the highlights from the the videos that we were making there. We started pitching ad agencies, and we became commercial directors for a period of time. You know, all the way up, like we, we just reached out to... Dr. Ben Carson's presidential campaign last yeah. last go around four years ago, and we're like, "Hey, you guys need help, and we have an ad for you." And he was like, "The Barry Bennett, the uh, the uh, campaign manager, was like, let me hear the idea.' We had no idea; we just tweeted that at him, and uh, so we dreamed up this crazy idea over lunch. We pitched it to them, and he was like, yeah, let's do it. So next thing you know, we're traveling to ten different cities and shooting this national presidential campaign ad we're like wow what's going on so we were finding this success doing this stuff but but we quickly started feeling frustrated with even even that because what we realized was like ultimately we're not really directing these commercials you know it's the creative director it's the client that still ultimately has the final say and we really want to tell our own stories so from there we made a short film called hero and it was kind of like really true to who we are as storytellers You know, it was about this group of boys and their big imaginations, what they picture as they play themselves as adults, as these heroes. We we got this great score for the f- film done in um, Prague, in the Czech Republic, and um, that film we put in the in the film festival circuits, and that eventually led us to getting a manager down in L.A. He took us around to all the major uh, talent agencies there, and we ended up landing an agent in Hollywood. Wow. So it came full circle. My parents' worst nightmare came true. I, I became a Hollywood repped director. So the, the, the place that we're in right now 
is that we're writing screenplays. So we were going mm. to Hollywood all of last year and we were going to all the major studios and pitching TV shows and movies, yeah. um, having general meetings, that sort of thing. And uh, eventually we kind of narrowed it down to like, okay, here's some concepts people really like and they want us to develop into to screenplays. So we've been writing for like a, the better part of a year mm. and uh, COVID really kind of messed everything up for us. Yeah. Um, last month we were supposed to be directing a show um, on HBO Max, and the show, of course, got postponed probably sometime into next year. So wow. that would have been our first, like, real big Hollywood directing gig. Um, and we were going to direct the pilot episode, and that would have been really, I mean, it's really hard to get into directing television. Oh, yeah. No. But, you know, so we essentially broke in, and now we're just kind of on hiatus for a while. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we're doing a lot of writing, which I'm not a fan of writing, but it's a necessary evil because everybody wants you to be a package deal. They want you to be a writer-director. It's very hard to just come in as a director. So, yeah, yeah that's the long story short of what's been going on ever since I got out of the IFB. Um, the goal is to make, to make movies, you know, yeah. and I think we're closer than ever now. Um, just biding our time, you know, we're close. Yeah. I'm excited about it. No, that's amazing. I mean, it's a <laughs> kind of Bible belt to Hollywood, you know, it's you kind of <laughs> knocked out the journey, but it's, yeah, man. I mean, that's, that's awesome. And, and I share, you know, I, I'm trying to nail down what that is for me, but I, I definitely know creating content is what I want to do. And uh, the podcast, I didn't think I would like doing as much as I, as I have. Um, yeah. But yeah, I'm in the same boat. COVID kind of killed a lot of my, my plans, but I'm as the kid who is also running around with a VHS camera and like ripping off Terminator two and, you know, Spider-Man movies with my yeah. shots and stuff. It's, it's exciting for me for someone to, you know, to bust through and, and be really crushing it over there. So but um, yeah, man, I, I look forward to keep following up and, and it's, it's kind of surreal talking to you because you were just a name whispered around a lot when I was growing up and in uh, both positive and, you know, and some yeah. questionable light. Um, but it's, <laughs> it's just awesome to get to connect with you, kind of know yeah. where you're at and um, kind of have this weird shared journey in a lot of ways. Um, you're, you're a bit further ahead in it than me, but uh, it's interesting to get to talk through some of the, the same situations. So, yeah, but, absolutely. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you as well. I admire what you're doing. I know you're working on a documentary yeah. uh, about all this kind of stuff, which I'm very excited about because for a long time I've thought, man, somebody's got to make a documentary about this stuff. So I'm yeah. so glad you're the guy doing it. Yeah, it's it's going to be good. I mean, it's right when I wanted to start shooting, the country shut down. Yeah. Um, but it's been really surprising just from a creative standpoint, like doing all these interviews and meeting so many people. Like I've got my list of who I want to talk to narrowed down more than ever. You know, I've got exactly what angle to go at this from. Like it's going to be a really, really I, I think it was kind of like a miraculous thing that everything shut down the way it did around this, because I think it's going to be really guns loaded when it comes out. So, uh, but yeah, I'll, uh, maybe I'll share an office with you at HBO and we can get it out there. And, uh, but, uh, but yeah, no, thanks. Thanks for coming on. Um, and for, for sharing with me. And I, I know it's going to help a lot of people as they kind of think through this on their own. So absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the preacher boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, 
please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.